0: And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken for granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working
1: hard on these
0: issues. Thanks for listening.
1: So the first question that Sarah and Vicky would like us to discuss is around the priorities for uh, for research topics on impoverishment in this moment. So let's break that down. Are there particular aspects of this particular moment, this conjuncture that that stand out to you as requiring a particular kind of research response, or are the old questions still good enough I to answer? I think the
0: old questions would be very good, and we... Uh, And actually, we have a lot of answers to the old questions, but the answers are not much attended to. They don't get much illumination or attention. Uh, I mean, everybody, I suppose, is tired of, but also knows that poverty has persisted and increased in relative terms, increased sharply in relative terms in the United States. I sort of think most reasonable people also know that uh, the policies are at hand. They're available technically, intellectually, and in resource terms, that could eliminate this kind of poverty, but there isn't a chance that it's going to happen under these political conditions. But... You know, people sort of weary of talking about... They don't want to talk about poverty anymore. It's lost its fashionability. And, I mean, it will take poor people on the move to make it attractive and exciting and fashionable again. And I mean, the irony there is that I don't think poor people start moving under the banner of, we are the poor. Uh, they want to be something bigger and better and more dignified and more respected than the poor. So they don't begin, at least, by calling themselves the poor or the new poor or the neoliberal poor. And I don't think they begin first. So. By, what, by that I mean that in a period that seems to be calm and stable and where people are uh, conforming and uh, quiet poor people are not going to take the lead so there has to be a and that's because they're the most vulnerable people on the scene so they they need to get encouragement and morale, in a sense, from adjacent groups. Uh, And when they do, of course, they are politically very capable, as history shows.
1: So, let's take a moment to talk about what we might mean by at this moment.
0: What a moment.
1: How are we going to even characterize this moment and then relate it back to this comment that you just made about poor people needing in some ways to be adjacent to and in relationship with other groups who might be moving or making themselves visible as the centers in this moment. So let's start with what is this moment exactly?
0: It's a moment of vast uncertainty coupled with Unbelievable uh, predation, Uh, the dispossession.
1: Yeah,
0: dispossession. The I mean, the the contemporary capitalism uh, makes money by taking, not by making, but by taking. That's true of the two. The two most important sectors of contemporary capitalism: finance and fossil fuels, both of whom are short-sighted, desperate, and taking. Not only are they taking our natural resources and making us hotter and wetter and dirtier, but they're taking the assets that working people have accumulated over decades. They're repossessing their houses. For example, or they're stealing their accumulated savings, or they're
1: taking their jobs, taking
0: their pensions, Uh, and pensions, after all, represent deferred wages. Uh, So it's a it's a very predatory kind of capitalism, and it can't last. Uh, I don't know how it's going to end, and I don't know anybody who knows how it's going to end. I you know, I can't think of, you know, social scientists like me, we try to understand what's going on now by looking to the past for examples that can guide us. And I think that I, I have to go back to before the Revolutionary War in the United States to find examples of intense conflict sort of conflict to the death and the lack of a time perspective, the lack of a far-seeing perspective in the ruling class that now prevails, that now exists.
1: Um, And the lack of a a social perspective as well, a lack of a perspective that they need a stable society in order to in order to make their accumulation strategies work.
0: They're not thinking about their right. grandkids anymore. Because uh, their grandkids are not going to like living in a space station or on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and everything we know about ruling classes, especially bourgeois ruling classes, has been premised on this idea of a certain kind of continuity. And I I think it's gone. It's amazing, but it's gone. And, I mean, they knew what they they know now, and they knew a year or two years or five years ago when they allowed this crazy man, Donald Trump, Uh, to be the one who rallied the masses that could give them at least the appearance of legitimacy. Uh, And they did it. They did it. Unbelievable. So I'm not making any... I don't make any prediction except this one prediction. I don't think it's the end of the world. I don't think it's the end of the United States or the American empire either. I think that we're going to go on. It may be pretty awful, but we're going to go on. And therefore, uh, we have to think about our politics and about resistance and about solutions.
1: So, who are we resisting? Are we resisting and are we targeting as poverty scholars and activists? Are we resisting the ascension of the kind of right-wing populist movements that are racist and dangerous? Or are we resisting the ruling class or resisting which are, who are perhaps more centrist politically but equally authoritarian and very deeply suspicious of popular sovereignty and have been for decades. Well, they're
0: suspicious of popular sovereignty, but I don't think they're authoritarian in the way that the Nazis in the right-wing movements
1: are. Uh, Yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, well... I take things one step at a
1: time. <laughs> so explain, I guess I'm asking you to think about what is the relationship of the ruling class to these right-wing populist forces that have been unleashed?
0: Oh, I think it is uh, opportunistic. They, There's always been a, a kind of populist right in the United States. It's always been racist it's always lived on a kind of politics of resentment.
1: uh, And rage.
0: And rage. And they've always had some good reasons for the resentment and rage. And in a settler country with lots of immigrants and with a huge black population, I mean, there are plenty of targets for that rage, because the targets for this kind of rage have to be people who can't shut you up, who can't imprison you. Uh, So the rage is always vented on people who are below you.
1: And vulnerable.
0: And vulnerable. But make no mistake about it, these people are not new at all in the United States. not only have they been the fodder for movements, right wing movements in the past, but they've also been the fodder for ersatz movements, which are really just uh, criminal business enterprises like the Second Ku Klux Klan uh, or the Townsend Movement a little bit later. These are just scams. And these, these, people who don't know better, are enticed into these organizations where they have special insignia and special chance, and you can live with that. But that's not exactly what's happening now. What's happening now is that this current in... American political culture and American politics is being activated and put to the purposes of ruling class groups who are not dumb, who have no time perspective, who have no commitment to a future, who are just anxious to get as much as they can while they can. And that's a dangerous situation. It's a little bit like German fascism, but it's not really like German fascism.
1: Well, not I, yet. And yeah, who knows? Who it could. knows? Right. I, I
0: said the main thing about the current period is who knows? It's very unpredictable.
1: All right, so let's, in this context in which we have uh, a... A ruling class whose attitude is basically après moi le deluge, right? They don't care, right? And a and a disaffected white middle class that is willing to hitch its coattails to a a kind of crypto white nationalist project that could go in a variety of different directions and as it's embodied in the Trump presidency and before that his candidacy, a deep profound suspicion for the political, for political society as it's currently constituted in its, in its neoliberal and neoconservative forms in both of them. If poor people want to align themselves with anybody in order to get some traction which is what we started off this part of this conversation with, where are the possible alliances, collaborations, coalitions?
0: Well, there are a lot of possibilities, but there's also a lot of churning now, so it's hard to delineate the movement or the resistance landscape with any definiteness. Uh, But... uh, think for example about the activism that's now moving into the democratic party well you know i've always been a skeptic about the democratic party as i think you have jeff Uh, but i nevertheless think that what's going on now is very important uh for one thing i think only Idiot organizers want to do something that people don't want to do. People want to move into the Democratic so Party. So let's help That's them do it happening. the right
1: way. Let's right. help
0: them do it in a better way. Right. Uh, we can never move people as energetically as they move themselves, after all. So, uh, and you know, there's a lot to be done through the Democratic Party. It moved. Steadily to the right since the end of the Second World War, and then sharply to the right with the rise of uh, the
1: uh, well Clinton the 90's Gore, Clintonism, and, and yeah. right, and the kind of neoliberal turn, and yeah. right. So and even Obama in some. In I many mean, Obama
0: ways. was I mean, all these emails I get saying, "Let's thank Obama." I thank Obama for nothing. Obama wasted an opportunity to recover the Democratic Party or to recover at least the left-wing populist uh, strand in the Democratic Party. And he took advantage of that to, to get elected, but he didn't do much about it.
1: And well, he- I, I would have to interrupt to say that the extent to which he failed to address the housing crisis both materially as a form of dispossession that was affecting millions of people and symbolically where he rescued the banks but he didn't even fight to rescue people he he let it go even rhetorically even if he had been uh, blocked which he was to some extent but if he had fought over two terms to to enfranchise people who were victimized by this predatory Lending and by the way that the, the financialized housing market was moving in the in the from the 90s to the 2000s, he it would have changed dramatically the ability of any politician who followed to do something exciting I agree. and you, interesting. And
0: you know, the, the in a way, the most critical period was his first two term two years. When he had a Democratic Congress, and he did very little. Uh, and then, of course, he lost the Congress, and he had the excuse that he had to work with a Republican and an increasingly right-wing uh, Congress. And it was during this period that the point you're making—that if he had at least symbolically uh, stood for ordinary Americans and poor Americans. That would have been something. And instead, he uh, he basically was uh, an enlightened neoliberal, which is, I think, what he is, actually. No matter, he was a mistake. I was, I'm sure you were, too. I was enthusiastic on election night, 2008, because it was so amazing that America was coming to the town. A black president, and you know, up here in this neighborhood, on 125th Street, everybody, Columbia students were hugging black Harlem residents. It was nice. It yes,
1: was those a nice moments moment. Matter. Nice moment. Um, um, okay, so let's get back to the question of where are the alliances possible?
0: I, well, I think that. There are a lot of alliances that are possible
1: for the future. Beyond the Democratic Party. Beyond the
0: Democratic Party, I don't think I actually made the point that one of the reasons... It's good to move the Democratic Party to the left because it can stop some things and even do some uh, uh, policy initiatives that would be helpful. But it's good to move the Democratic Party to the left because electoral politics creates an echo chamber within which movements are born and within which they grow and within which they work out their demands. And there's an overlapping constituency between electoral politicians and movement uh, leaders. And that overlap in constituencies means that elected politicians have to pay attention to movement demands. And movement leaders have to pay attention to elected politicians because they have such powerful uh, rhetorical uh, voices.
1: Indeed, we could see this happening on the right right now.
0: Yes. So, yeah, we want one of the major parties on our side, right away. (laughs) And we could get it because I've never seen anything like this. Almost nobody planned it, nobody told anybody to do it, nobody laid out the blueprint. But everybody's figuring out ways to take over the Democratic Party, which Barack Obama could not, did not do. Uh, And that's terrific, that's really good. And that will help movements, that will. Now, poor people need a sense that their issues are are not gonna marginalize them, that there's going to be an audience for them, that there's going to be some sympathetic resonance, and a Democratic Party that reconnects with its New Deal roots would be very important in that respect. But also, other movements are very important in that respect. I mean, during Occupy, for example, and I, in one way or another, I was at a lot of the occupations in different cities, Uh, and poor people were attracted to those occupations. They weren't theirs, and they weren't sure of their welcome, uh, and they were partly attracted by the free food, no question about that.
1: But they felt invited in. But
0: they felt a little bit invited in, and they were experimenting, feeling how sincere that invitation was going to be, was it going to just be a flip rhetorical thing? or that was sort of the beginning of an alliance. And, and what about like Black Lives Matter? Where do you see that in this? Well, you can't separate race from poverty in the United States. Most poor people are not white Americans. Some are, but
1: most are not. And, uh... I mean... I see Black Lives Matter myself as really part of really dealing with this very strong sense of outrage that is pervasive in black communities and giving some of it some kind of political coherence and, and if you look at what was going on in Ferguson those were spontaneous uprisings
0: well so were the riots of the 1960s that's right
1: and you saw that in Ferguson now uh, it targeted against police you know, brutality and murder and I think the way that Black Lives Matter has emerged in that context of deep black community insurgency is a very interesting part of that political formation that is emerging not on the right at all, you know.
0: Not on the right at all. I noticed that uh, Black Lives Matter is also sort of moving into this, m- what you might call a movement to retake the Democratic Party. They're doing it too. Yes. They're into it too. Uh, so they're... This amount of consensus among movement groups is very unusual, I think.
1: Who should poverty research and teachers be collaborating with?
0: Well, you know, that that kind of question always raises for me the question of what's the role of academics in relation to activists on the left? Left academics and left activists. We used to not have to say left academics and left activists. Now we have to specify which ones we need. Uh, And uh, I'm always asked about that, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. So...
1: I think that part of the reason we're asked about this is that the organic connections that academics used to have to movements have frayed over well, then, the last 20 years, and I think academics are searching often for a kind of public intellectualism that doesn't exist in the United States anymore. Oh, and, uh, you know, so I think that's maybe one of the sources f- where you require a more deliberate way of thinking through what exactly an academic can do in these circumstances. But I've been
0: hearing the same questions all my <laughs> life and that's a long time because it's a long life. And uh, it's a difficult question to answer and I think that a lot of people, left students and faculty, academics, uh, take a kind of easy way out by assuming that if you study poverty, if you study activist groups, that you're on the left. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, That's... It creates a possibility, I suppose, of making a contribution, but uh, to actually be part of a movement, make an intellectual contribution to a movement, uh, t- takes, I think, much more than that. And it's very hard to do when you're on an academic track, uh, trying to get ahead, trying to get reappointed, and then trying to get tenure, and then trying to get make full professor, and I remember at one sociology conference where William Julius Wilson and I were...
1: Battling it out.
0: ...unhappily uh, (laughs) on a panel together, and we were asked that kind of question, and William Julius Wilson seized the mic eagerly and said, well, you do that after you get tenure. (sighs) And I seized the mic back and I said, if you wait until after you get tenure, you'll never do it. <laughs> uh, which I think is actually true uh, in real life. So it's, uh, I think academics exaggerate the importance of the contribution that they can make, but they can make a contribution. I don't know what it is about intellectuals, but look at the left, the grand left intellectual tradition of the last two centuries. It begins really with the recognition that working people, the working class, is the heart of a democratic and a socialist dynamic. And then it proceeds to become completely entangled in intellectual constructions and debates which, in in which working people are not at all involved. Uh, If you look at, who are the left intellectuals now? Do they live and breathe and work with uh, the working class? No.
1: Well, they actually are. Some of them are part of the working class because they're They're contingent labor and they're vulnerable.
0: But that was not their intention.
1: (laughs) No, but it is a reality that maybe is bringing them into the kind of positionality that you're actually, and and the relationship to other vulnerable workers that perhaps is um, what you're after.
0: Maybe. Well, we'll see. We'll see where that I shouldn't be fighting to get adjuncts full-time work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, you should, of course. (laughs) You should be fighting for everybody to have full-time work. Full-time work
0: and tenure.
1: And tenure.
0: Everybody should have tenure. I've always said that.
1: Everybody. Okay, so, um, you know, one of the ways that we could see that the ruling classes are exploiting the current moment is by really facilitating and, or at least allowing a whole set of exclusionary practices to emerge in, in the political realm and in the social realm itself, where you now have this kind of open white nationalist talk, which was always there, always below the surface, but kind of gestured to with the, the dog whistle kind of way, but now it's kind of open and out there. So... What is, what kind of response do we have to this kind of new, heightened, visceral politics of exclusion that is manifesting itself at the current moment? I'm not sure,
0: uh, What well, what are some of the examples
1: of the politics of exclusion, well, the immigration thing? Yes, the attempt to, to the, well, I mean, if you think about it, if we just take Donald Trump as the obvious example. The foundational maneuver that Donald Trump made to legitimate himself as a political force was birtherism. It was the discrediting of Barack Obama, who you can like or dislike, whatever, but but the maneuver to say that this black American wasn't American captivated the hearts and minds of many people who became enthusiasts. From there, you get another level of exclusion on the kind of exclusion of immigrants, right? From there, you can look at a whole set of sexist, misogynistic politics that is about putting women in their place. And this is just one trajectory of it in the Trump thing. You see a series of maneuvers, of political maneuvers, that are being sutured together into a political project that is, that is Gaining energy and vitality by bringing up a, a, a series of people who are, who are trying to be expelled from the body politic.
0: Well, by bringing up a, a minority group in American society that clings to the idea that it's maleness and it's whiteness and it's heterosexuality uh, make it a deserving group in contrast to all the people who are besmirched in some ways by dubious identities. Is that what you mean? Yes. It's important always to remember that we're talking about a minority of the population. Right. It's there, it's can, it can become adamant, it can become dangerous uh, and it seethes with resentment. But it is a minority. Uh, one uh, After all, I mean, Barack Obama was elected president in 2008, again in 2012. Uh, Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in the United States. The, what is challenging, I think, is how to react to and encapsulate and isolate this poisonous subculture uh, that has been with us for a very long time, uh, that had something to do with the Civil War, but certainly was very important after Reconstruction. Uh, and uh, reemerged importantly, in the 1920s. Even in the 1930s, yeah. there were uh, brown-shirters Absolutely. that were very uh, important, or the people in New York City who cheered madly when Mussolini's planes flew into LaGuardia Airport. Uh, so. It's, it's part of that
1: but, and there's that and there's that strain but there's also other exclusionary practices for example the ones we began this conversation with which is the way that finance and extractive capital is fundamentally predatory in the sense of needing to to basically dispossess and then cast off as a, a, as a, a, a mode of accumulation. Right, so there's, there's, there's the kind of political scene of white nationalism and its resurfacing of, in the moment, and, which is built upon this long strain that you talked about, but there's also this other exclusion, which is the, the exclusion from economy, the exclusion from...
0: But they, the, the two have a lot to do with each other, don't don't they? Uh, Arlie Hochschild's book, uh, Strangers in Our Own Land, or... In Their Own Land, uh is about people who have been economically uh, dispossessed and excluded. Um, These people in uh, southern Louisiana have been dispossessed from the natural world, in a way, the natural world that they knew and that they were acclimated to and that their culture was organized around, and the fossil fuel industry came in and they destroyed the Bayous they destroyed uh, the land that they had been able to farm
1: there are no fish they destroyed the land itself because land loss in the Mississippi Delta is an epic it's it's accelerating by the day and so they're actually even destroying the land it's become mud you know where you know it's go on and the
0: people that are the friends and interviews are people who are right-wingers who support the fossil fuel industry that did this to them. Uh, It's tangled. I I don't know if if I'd say it's complicated, but it's very... The relationship between political culture and economic political interest is a very tangled one. And it seems always, not just in the United States, but elsewhere, to be relatively easy to turn economic hardship into resentment against uh, the other, against excluded groups. And that's certainly what was going on in southeastern Louisiana. Moreover, it's my own opinion that no amount of the empathy that the author Arlie Hochschild calls for can reverse this. Yes.
1: Tell me more about that.
0: Well, I think that it, that's just the way they, they are. The, these people have lived this kind of life with these kinds of antipathies and the, uh, the sense of who's their friend and who's part of their family, their world. They've lived it all their life.
1: So are you saying that one of the implications that one could glean from the statement that you just made is that the solution is to defeat them politically, not to try to absolutely. convert them into political I'm, allies?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can defeat them politically. We have, at the uh, benign moments of American politics, we've defeated them. We have not converted them. In the 1930s and 1960s, They were defeated. They came back to bite us. I didn't say we killed them, we defeated them. And we have to defeat them again.
1: To close out this conversation, what do you think the key words are that, that anybody, activist, academic, organizer, Democratic Party, uh, operative, anybody needs to be thinking about in order to move the conversations that we need to be having in the right direction? What are the key words in the Raymond Williams sense of the words that need to be struggled over, the words that we need to to identify? and talk about so that we're having the kinds of debates and productive dialogues that we need to be having to open up political spaces? What are the key words for you? I
0: think we have to reconsider the idea of class. Uh, We have to develop a more flexible and expansive idea of class that doesn't depend on role in production. I think we have to... uh, pay attention to the role of dispossession and predation in the contemporary American economy in a way that is more important than it has ever been. Uh, I think we have to also pay attention to the way in which we give or deny dignity and respect. and I think we should be more generous with our respect. Uh, Not exactly in the way that Arlie calls for, but in sort of more elemental ways. Uh, I want to respect everyone who's trying to do the right thing uh, or trying to take care of their kids and their brother and earn a living and... We especially should respect the people who do the dirt work in our society, but that, and that's always been true, and we've always denied them respect.
1: I would add three words. Oh, okay. good. One word is equality. I think in a moment of a heightened inequality, it's important to think about what equality might look like and how we might think about trying to get there. Okay. Not just responding to the rear guard action of protecting people, which I think is essential at this political moment, trying to, to reduce harm, trying to protect people from this predatory forms of dispossession and hyper exploitation, but also thinking about what kind of equality we want and how we can invite people into a conversation about equality that might attract them. The second term is freedom that I think we might want to think about, which is similarly a term that is very attractive to lots of people. And it, has, it is a term that animates a lot of people on the right and left equally and everywhere. But what kind of freedom might attract people, might people want?
0: I worry about freedom because freedom, I think, has been sort of occupied as a concept by the right. And
1: but we can't get equality without it, or well, equality without freedom is not an equation that Well, works.
0: but freedom <laughs> is even more ambiguous than equality.
1: Uh, we have to. I think we
0: want to think about equality sort of in relative terms too. It's the extremes of inequality that are so uh, pernicious. Uh, Everybody doesn't have to be equal, Uh, but extreme inequality is very dangerous for social life.
1: I think that's uh, one way of looking at it. For me, thinking about equality and freedom, especially thinking about them together, is a part of the project of envisioning a world in which people can feel That they could be their queer self or their black self or their immigrant self or whoever they want to be. And also in tandem think about having basic resources that they need and without feeling that they have to sacrifice one of those projects for the other. So that's why I think they need to be thought about together and I think that could, those could be guiding principles however vaguely uh,
0: elaborated that they are I no, um no trouble agreeing yeah. with that but just, and it's, it is very general though
1: It's well I think maybe we need a, a set of general terms that can the right has been very effective at using very general terms almost to the point of being empty signifiers to achieve all kinds of things in their in, in a very specific set of The class. most
0: interesting abuse of language by the right has been the way they've interpreted freedom. Yes. As economic... they take taken economic license, and they called it freedom. Yeah. And they insist that that's what freedom is. And they've been doing that for 50 years. Yes. With increasing success.
1: If you contrast that with, for example, how FDR thought about freedom, those are very different...
0: The four freedoms, Yes, yeah. the
1: four freedoms, those are different projects, and there, I think, are other ways as well. So, freedom
0: from want. Yeah.
1: And the third term I think we have to think about is authoritarianism, and the forms it can take, and the, and the ways that authoritarian rule are kind of manifesting themselves right now. And I think I I would bring up this term to say that it is not, on the one hand, I think we have to take the rise of Donald Trump and the uncertainty of this political moment and the dangers of it and the way that we're invoking the possibilities of this being a kind of imminently pre-fascist moment and the way it could go in that direction which i think is absolutely true we have to go in that direction we have to think about that possibility but we also have to think about the forms of authoritarian rule that have that were in place 10 years ago the kind the ways in which technocratic rule and the debates between neoconservatives and neoliberals about parsing out who was going to lead for this 4 years or that 8 years or this that also were st- Fundamentally suspicious of popular sovereignty, of, of any sort of really, truly democratic decision making around economy and, and how we have to think carefully about not just being satisfied with some return to a kinder, gentler form of neoliberal rule. So I think we have to be very careful about the authoritarianism that was implicit in the neoliberal project all along the deep suspicion that neoliberals had for people and their ideas and beliefs, and the need to, to, to think about government in ways that are different from those centrist political years that we've just endured since the Reagan era.
0: Well, maybe that argues that we have to rethink the requisites for fundamental democracy.
1: That sounds like a good moment to end on. Good. What do you think? <laughs> All right.